0: Welcome to Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness. My name's Ali Hill and as a psychologist, I love asking people questions. And I thought what better way to do this than to get the people I admire into a studio to share their stories. This podcast is our corner of the world where all of us can dive deep into what it takes to live a standout life. This episode was one of the most fascinating conversations that I've had in this series. Dr Nikki Stamp is on a personal mission. She's a heart and lung surgeon, which means that she spends her days working on the edge of life and death. She has witnessed the inner workings of our bodies in a way that many of us are completely oblivious to. You'll hear her deep curiosity and fascination, the thing that drives her to continue to explore what makes our heart tick, what cures a broken heart, and how we should all be making it a priority to look after our heart. Nikki is also a participant of the social media campaign, hashtag, I Look Like a Surgeon. I didn't actually get a chance to talk to her about this because our conversation went down a bunch of other interesting routes, but I wanted to make sure that you know about it so you can check out the campaign that is hellbent on changing our perception of what a surgeon looks like. With the recent release of her first book, Can You Die of a Broken Heart?, Nikki has a strong desire to change the way we think about health and women's heart disease. I promise you that your heart will thank you for taking the time to tune in to this conversation with Dr Nikki Stamp. Nikki, it's great to be chatting with you.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Ali. It's a pleasure to be to be here and uh, I'm sure we're going to get some interesting questions.
0: <laughs> Plenty of interesting questions. And look, I've got to be telling you, I've got to tell you, I've been absolutely devouring your book, uh, oh, Can great. You Die of a Broken Heart? <laughs> um, it was one that I kind of saw on the shelf a couple of times and went, oh, and then picked up and read it. And it's just, um, yeah, it just touches on a range of things. And I think conversations that we don't always have, but I want to start. Particularly, there's a bunch of stories that you talk about through through your your experience as a um, heart and lung surgeon. In particular, one mm-hmm. of the stories is around a fellow called Paul. And Paul was, and you described, was 54, and he'd had a angiogram whilst competing at the Australian Masters Swimming Championship. So he's a pretty mm. fit fellow. And I guess he really faced this, why me? Question, which I'm sure you get from a lot of patients. Can you describe what it was like, I guess, walking through and working through that question with someone like Paul?
1: I, I guess just, just to give a bit of background, so I talk about about this guy because he's he's the, sort of the least likely person you'd ever expect, expect to be meeting a heart and lung surgeon and, uh, you know, fit and healthy and as you probably imagine, a lot of my patients aren't quite up to that level of competition. Um, you know, I see a lot of people who um, unfortunately have an illness because of... Um, things that we do to ourselves and we're all guilty of this to some extent, you know, the way we eat, the way we exercise or don't or smoking. But but when, when you see people who have um, something through no fault of their own, um, no, they didn't ask for it, they look after themselves um, and it really just does seem really unfair, it's a really hard discussion to have because, you know, it, it is just so unfair. It's unfair for us. I mean, we, we, the doctors, the nurses, we all look at it and we think, God, that's just so not right. <laughs> and um, and uh, it's a it's a difficult conversation to have, and to try and explain to someone why they have done all of the right things in their life, um, and they're still wound up with a, a life threatening illness. Um, there's no easy way to do that, but the best part of that conversation is to say that. If you, because you've looked after yourself, because you're fit and healthy and all these other good things, that you're probably going to do a lot better in so many arenas. You're going to recover better physically. You're going to recover better emotionally. Um, it's, all, it's all trying to keep people in some ways looking on the brighter side of these terrible situations.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and I think that's one of the, those things that really struck me, particularly around Paul's story, is that um, you know there are times where we go, well, I'll have an extra glass of wine because gosh, it could happen, even if I <laughs> <That's> <laughs> do <right>. look after <laughs> myself. Um, so yeah, this sense of well, actually, by having looked after yourself, you're you're in a much better position, and and you kind of describe that with Paul's story that that's something he was able mm-hmm. to kind of work through as yeah. well.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think. I think also, you know, there is there there is a, a line. There is that you know that we that extra glass of wine or you know skipping a workout. You know, all in all is probably not going to do us any damage. But you know, it sort of adds up over time. And and you've really got to give yourself the best fighting chance. So I, I describe to people that you know. Um, we don't know what genes we're born with, right? We, we're, we're born with genes that make disease or fight disease or, you know, we have no idea. So what we do to ourselves is a little bit like playing Russian roulette. We are kind of taking a chance on whether or not we're going to be the person with the genes that, that fights disease or, or we're taking a chance that we've the, got the genes that, that create disease. So, you know, you've always got to give yourself the best possible chance in life.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And look, it's such a, a fascinating career that you've gone down. And um, and I think that really, can, that's one of the things for me that really comes through the book is something that you just go, look, I'm deeply fascinated. And it was almost like I'm, I got hooked. Can you describe or even recall that first time that you actually saw a beating heart inside someone's chest? Yeah, oh, such a good question. I'm not 100%
1: sure the first time. I can remember sort of the first few weeks that I was uh, on a rotation in, in cardiac surgery and the first few weeks were just this blur of amazingness <laughs> um, like everything was interesting everything was new I was just so so fascinated and I think you know it helped along by the fact that I was working with people who shared that kind of passion and interest in what they did but a lot of the, the sort of early memories I have of, of my career in heart surgery is is really centered Around patients, um, because I remember them so distinctly. I remember their stories. I remember their amazement, their their wins and losses, um, and that for me is is a huge part of why I do what I do. Um, so it's it's not the hearts are amazing. Don't get me wrong. The owners are pretty special, though.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I think it's that human human element that you bring to Ooh. what often can be very clinical environment mm. um, I yeah. imagine that you you are you're looking at an organ and, you, and you're looking at it quite clinically but it sounds like yeah. it's that human story that you've always um, kind of connected back to
1: Oh, absolutely, and and like you say, I, I've had wonderful mentors who who's, who sort of feel the same. You know, they know who these pe- people are. As you know, I suppose best you can know someone um, when they're giving you that kind of trust and responsibility. But yeah, it is. It's always important about putting that person, that disease, that that heart, that organ in context, um, and and that is just such a vital. Thing that we need to do to to be able to empower people to take care of themselves
0: I am going to ask you a, a bit of a clinical question because again in the book <laughs> and I had never really thought about this but you described and so open heart surgery is just that it's it's you kind of open up the chest cavity and you uh-huh, describe so-huh. how the heart and the lungs kind of sit together um, and for me I'd always kind of thought of them a layer of the cake but it's not quite like that is it no,
1: so um, our body is kind of divided into little cavities um, that, that sort of form from when we're, you know, before we're even born. Um, and the, the heart and the lungs, they kind of nestle uh, together. In fact, the the heart particularly nestles into the left lung a little bit more than the right lung and leaves a little indentation, a little cardiac impression on the left lung. So they're they're so, so close to one another. But they've got their own little own little layers and own little surroundings and the heart sits in a sack, for example. Um, and these are like just these are sort of the things that I find amazing is that the heart sits in a sack which has a few mils of this clear little fluid that uh, lubricates the heart inside that sack so it can beat and move freely and ju- that's just the sort of thing that you know it's it's kind of like a, a car design that you, you it's just such an amazing clever design and I love the way that they're so intimately related and and nestled into one another. It's it's just I, I think stuff like that is absolutely fascinating. <laughs> it probably means I need to get out more. But
0: <laughs> no, know, I'm I'm right with you, and I, like obviously don't work in this field, but I you just. You, we're just scraping the surface of really understanding this complexity oh, that we, we carry around every day. So much.
1: I, I, I think that's an ama- amazing thing to think about, like the, the the enormity of what we know but also what we don't know. You know, we, we think we're so clever. We think we've really got this sorted. Um, we know so much about our bodies and I, I took look at the heart, for example. We know so much about it and we're, you know, better than ever at looking after it, yet we still can't replicate the original. The original is by far and away the best. I mean, that's like, when you think about that, that is an enormous, epic thought, you know, that Mm. it it is just so spectacular.
0: And and we just take it for granted every moment of the day. So true. One of the things you, um, I guess, are really vocal about is is talking about women's heart health. Because often when we talk about, uh, we associate heart, Disease or um, mm-hmm. heart attacks, and it's it's often a very male conversation, and yet heart disease is the number one killer of Australian women. Mm. Um, what is it that you think women need to know more about their hearts?
1: That's uh, that's such a good question because you're absolutely right because most of us we we do associate that with with a, with our fathers our brothers uncles and so on and so forth and uh, the medical profession the help you know doctors and nurses know better we we do the same um, so I think it's really important to, to understand for women to understand um, that they they do need to worry about this so the Heart Foundation did some research a few years ago and found that only. Um, two out of ten women realised or thought that their heart health was something that was relevant to them. Um, and even with a fuse of campaigning, that number only rose to three and their aim is to get it to eight out of ten. So I think just getting that message out there. So if you know that this is something you have to be concerned about, um, then you tend to to ask the questions, you make sure that it's going to get checked, you talk to your GP. Um, but the things that I think if, you know, I Sort of messages that I would like all women to understand is is that you know heart disease sometimes presents a little differently in women. So if you're not right, if you're not getting, if you're getting um, tiredness, shortness of breath, you know, not being able to do the things that you used to be able to do, or funny aches and pains like men. Tend- are more likely to get pain in the chest, whereas women are more likely to get funny aches and pains in their arms or jaws or even in their back. Um, and if that, that's happening to you, then you need to go get checked. And you know your body. We all know our bodies really well. So if you're worried and you're not quite sure that things, you know, something's not right, then, you know, you, you go and, and make sure that you find out what exactly is going on. The other thing I think it's really important for people to to understand about about women's heart disease is that, like I say, the medical profession we're we're starting to get there, but we have for a long time been, I guess, lacking that understanding about how different heart disease is in women. And it's actually really important to, to push for, for your doctor to, to look after your heart. Um so I I like to I give a talk, um, sometimes called um it's it's not just about boobs because we all know that we have to go do our breast checks and you know pap smears and you know after you have a baby you know you go get your six-week check which is basically centered around you know the bub getting a six-week check and mum having her six-week check make sure everything's all all good but that's actually those sorts of times are the times when we should be checking our heart health too so women's health is always centered around you know basically breasts and and reproductive organs and in actual fact it encompasses so so much more than that and I would like I'd love for doctors I would love for women themselves to use those times to get your whole self checked and particularly your
0: heart yeah, you're right. It's such a um, a difference kind of in the marketing campaign.
1: <laughs> oh, my God, yeah. Uh, breast cancer are amazing. They've done such an amazing yeah. job, you know, and their hard work has really paid dividends. But, um, yeah, everyone else is going, oh, pick me too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, so yeah, important. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> and you've touched on such a new, like I think it's that um, what you're describing is the, the what women might notice. Um, mm. with with heart disease is quite different mm. just from that, you know, chest pain, there'll be pain oh, right. in other areas. And so even that's just an awareness and understanding that I know for myself I hadn't had before.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's, it's always interesting when I say that, you know, I speak to a room full of women, I say, you know, if you're tired that could be a sign of heart disease and the whole room just goes... Well oh, that's God. just ridiculous. Yeah. I'm always tired. <laughs> yes. I, I know, me too, but, <laughs> but still, you know, just something to keep in your mind. You know, it could could be a problem. <laughs> yeah, better to
0: be on top of it as well. Let,
1: I that's can understand. it. <laughs> Look,
0: as a as a psychologist, obviously I'm deeply fascinated in the affairs of the heart, but often oh. from more from an emotional <laughs> perspective. Um Have you seen, I guess, a connection between, I guess, the physiology of the organ of the heart and, I guess, you know, what is often the symbology of heart being kind of connected to love or emotions or, um, yeah, you know, feeling, Mm. feeling well? What's that connection been?
1: Yeah, so it's interesting because um, the book is called Can You Die of a Broken Heart? Because it is one of those things, that connection between your emotions and your physical self that people seem to be fascinated by. Um, And the reason I I called it that is because – that is probably one of the most common questions I get asked, like, you know, at a party or something, when people find out what I do, they're like, hey, I heard it. Is this is this real? Is this possible? But, you know, I, I start to as I started sort of thinking about that question myself and looking into it, I started to notice that when I would see people who'd had heart heart disease or heart attack, and they would come to hospital and they'd be seeing me to talk about heart surgery. I'd say, you know, we talk about their symptoms and then I'd say, you know, who do you live with or, you know, what what do you do for a living? And then all of this other stuff came out, like um, my mother just passed away three months ago. I just lost my job. I'm getting divorced, da, 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 da. All these sort of, you know, um, really incredibly stressful life events and it seemed to me that it's very anecdotal obviously my experience but it was there is this really strong connection uh, between how we feel and what happens to our bodies that sort of comes it comes to from two ways I suppose the first is that you know when you're feeling rubbish you just don't take care of yourself like you should um and you know we've we've all been there we've um you know got stuck into a tub of ice cream or <laughs> you know something else that makes it makes you sort of feel better temporarily which not so great for your physical body but the other thing is that when you're stressed and when you when you're sick and tired you, you get this huge cascade of of hormones which are designed to sort of protect us from tigers you know back in you know hundreds and hundreds of years ago but they actually cause a lot of physical symptoms and and potentially damage particularly if they persist for a long period of time and that can be very stressful on the heart so when I, I when I sort of started looking into this I kind of start to think oh maybe maybe this is why a number of my patients have have come in they've had a heart attack you know they've obviously got a whole bunch of other things going on like you know other risk factors like smoking and um you know inactivity etc but you know was this the tipping point for them was this the thing that pushed them over there over the edge this you know this um difficult emotional time so I started as I started to look I started to see it a lot more um it's actually it's become so um, so sort of real, I suppose, from a scientific point of view, that even in the last few years, the American Heart Association, which is one of the biggest heart organisations in the world, they're very, very scientific, very boffany, and they have actually released guidelines that suggest that uh, tell us to look out for depression, for example, as a significant risk for the development of heart disease, so we've we've come a full circle. We've gone from being, you know, really emotional about the heart and all about its mythology. Um, we've gone to being super super scientific, uh, and now we're coming a full circle. And I really like this aspect of what we do now—that we're we're holistic, um, and your emotional well being is is as important as your physical well being, and they both feed into each other. They're inextricably linked.
0: Yeah, and I think it's. Um... You know, it's such fascinating research, and I think we're probably really oh. at the edge of, of even what's going to dive into even more. But um, I think it, it it is that you know, giving someone a hug or <laughs> just yeah. that actually can be useful to that physiology um, as much much <laughs> as taking the medication. Um, along the Most way. Most definitely, yeah.
1: Yeah, and it, it, it is. And it's also, you know, that hug makes you feel good, but it also means that you're going to take better care of yourself. And I, I love that. I love that we can sort of love people into being healthy.
0: Mm, I guess off the back of that, how can we best look after our heart?
1: Yeah, so, I mean simple things, really boring things. I don't have a magic pill or anything, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's, it's, you do have to do a bit of a hard yard. Um, you know. So it's diet, is eating really well, particularly avoiding processed food and sugar um, would be top tips, um, eating lots of veggies, um, good fats, fish, for example. Uh, And then exercise, even small amounts of exercise improve your physical health. Uh, So even running five minutes a day, which is like nothing, even I could do that. And I'm a terrible runner these days. (laughs) 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 And um, I say these days, like once upon a time I was a good runner, but I definitely wasn't. (laughs) Yeah, right. just lying through my teeth um but you know even small amounts of exercise you know really really help your physical and emotional health um you know if you quit smoking without it's most important thing you could ever do for your health is to not smoke or quit quit smoking if you do um and knowing your risks as well so making sure that you understand how how to um i suppose minimize the chances of you developing developing something serious but Obviously, you know, I've written a book about this, but, you know, you must stay connected to people because that is just such a vital part of having a healthy emotional and a physically healthy life as well. So, those would be my sort of top tips.
0: Yeah, love it. I'm going to shift tact a little bit in my questions and I guess um, Mm. actually explore your journey, your personal journey and, uh, and your kind of drive, I guess, because it's one thing to know this and um, you work as a surgeon, which is, you know, a highly stressful and a full time job. Um, But on top of that, you've written a book and you've been putting yourself (laughs) out there in media just for something else to do. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that requires courage, I guess, to, to put yourself out there. Like, why has it been important for you to share this message to a wider audience? Oh, such a good question because it's a common
1: commonly asked question and and you're right it is putting yourself out there you know we we can be as a society a little bit harsh on people that we see sticking their head above above the above the waterline um, you know we, we judge people quite harshly particularly in an age of, of social media but I, I've always been someone I, I, I quite enjoy um, I quite enjoy public speaking for example and I'm a strange person but you know i, I don't I don't mind. I suppose being being that person who's sticking your hand up and saying I've got something to say, and these are things that matter to me. What I have to say, Um, you know, I'm happy to 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 stick my head above above the waterline and say these are things that I believe in, and they're things that I really want to change. I'm just I'm not someone who can can sort of sit around and hope that things get better or whinge that things, you know, aren't better. I have to, I have to push for that change. Um, You know, and it's been, it's been a really interesting experience because this is not something that you see a lot of uh, professionals in any arena, let alone medicine do. Um, And I've had some, I've had some, really not so great experiences <laughs> you know I had um you no know, social media is so mean um I had I had a, a message from someone who um recently who complained that I had I had my shoulder slightly expo- exposed on a tv segment I did um and said that that was that was you know what a slutty thing to wear so wow. I now I just turned that into a joke I'm like well my left shoulder's my left shoulder's so slutty but it's okay my my right shoulder's classy so we balance <laughs> out and you know, instead of dealing with that like you know with a yeah, you know, a bit of sense of humour. Um and you know that I have to say, I was talking um talking about this last night, that the um, you know the worst support I get, um as in the the people who are so quick to to judge and be harsh about what I do um are, are other women mm. and often other women doctors. Um, and that's so disappointing. Um, but at the end of the day, what outweighs that are, uh, you know, messages from people I've never met saying, you know, thank you. This made me want to take better care of myself. I got a message from a woman recently who was having a really difficult time um, in the healthcare system because, you know, there was some illness in the family, but also it was such a stressful time. She was struggling to sort of navigate everything. And she's like, you know, I've read your book and, and it gave me the the courage and the knowledge to, to ask, questions relevant appropriate questions and you know so all of those bad things all the slutty shoulders and whatever else that happens I'm I'm I can very easily put those to bed because the people who are being helped are are far far more important than the critics
0: Sounds like that connection back to yeah, what is important, and it's fascinating. I think um, often the critics are the people that are, are closest to us, not further away, and mm, and it can be mm. that we're holding up in some way a bit of a mirror of well, who do you think you are? Um, mm-hmm. But I think it sounds like yeah, it's critical to, to be able to uh, be able to combat that. Um, yeah, is there anything else aside from you know being able to see and hear? the people you are helping is there any other ways that you I guess combat those moments which might be self-doubt moments or or just those yeah. kind of critique moments when they come up
1: I think you know I think I, I certainly worry that you know that what I am doing is too far out there it's you know it's it's very um <laughs> it's very un like but at the end of it I believe so much in what I want to do that that you know it just doesn't it, you know, even those moments of self doubt, I can sort of say, "Well, look, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give it a bash. I've worked really hard to to bring a message, or you know, whatever else it is I'm doing. I've worked really hard. I've written a book, or you know, I and that that need to bring that message out kind of combats that sort of self self-doubt or those little fears and and I guess you know I've got a really I've got a great team I've got family and friends and people I work with who believe in what I do um and they they matter so much to me um that it's it's not a it just has to get done and I'm um, just keep pushing forward and keep getting the message out there
0: yeah yeah well keep doing it absolutely, <laughs> <Thank> <laughs> absolutely. <you. laughs> look one of the things I've been um, doing some work with women in leadership roles and particularly around this concept of decision making and how women make decisions and sometimes that is a little bit different to our male counterparts um, mm-hmm. but you make decisions in some pretty high stress situations <laughs> yeah um, I guess um do would you have a process for how you make those decisions? Does it become a gut instinct um, to, through time and research and experience? What what sits behind if you were to, be, I guess, be a bit forensic around your own decision-making, particularly in those high-stress situations?
1: I think it's such an interesting question because I've thought about this before because my, um, my decision-making sometimes in, in a high-stress situation is also Ultra, ultra time critical, mm-hmm. um, and it just—it has to happen in seconds, or it doesn't happen at all. Mm-hmm. And the the consequences of, of inertia uh, are, you know, dreadful. Um, you know, someone's life may be dependent on us making making the right making the right decision or sometimes just making a, a decision, just, you know, getting on with it. Yeah. And, um, you know, so I, I sort of sometimes look back at, you know, high stress, high stakes situations like a medical emergency and I just, you know, I can't for the life of me, work out the decision-making process that happens there. And I think because it happens so quickly, (laughs) there's just no time to sort of, you know, stop and think. Um, And it's a tough call, though, because these are sometimes really, really big calls to make. Um, They are literally life and death. And we use that word literally all the time at the moment. Yeah and it uh, doesn't actually mean literally but today I actually mean literally um that you know I have to make a decision to do an operation you know sometimes in the emergency department or you know um you know, just just huge huge things um and they have to happen quickly and so there is no there is sort of no time for for process I think it I think you're right I think it's gut um and I don't want to. It, it sounds really flippant you think oh god this heart surgeon is just making decisions based on her gut but I read a book um a few years ago Ago called Thinking Fast and Slow, mm. and it really drilled down that sort of um, quick-fire decision making. And it's not that you're just sort of you know giving a hail mary pass. It, it is that you have formulated this rapid decision making through years of training and experience. And that that come what that ends up being is is your gut rather than your um, you know this this sort of straightforward emotional um, well sorry this stepwise process I should say that, that of a decision-making tree but um it, it's it's a really difficult um it's a really difficult time but the the, the stress of it means you just have to get on with it the, you know other times you know we make decisions you know we have you know for example people with really complex problems and you have to sort of drill those down and and make the right decision in a a slightly slower time frame, because sometimes jumping in is quite possibly the worst thing you could do for that person. Um, And one of the things that I'm really lucky to have here is uh, colleagues who are a sounding board almost, um, who have different or more experience than I do. And you can sit there and, and talk these things through. Uh, and that's a, that's been a really important part of that sort of slower, longer decision-making process um, when it comes to, to looking after people.
0: Yeah, and I imagine that helps with the fast ones as well once you've had some times in those slower <laughs> ones and you know, yeah. similar experiences. Yeah. Absolutely, forward. and often and you're right like it is you make the call and it's not not necessarily about whether you know have I made the wrong call but I'm sure that there are times that it's not about the right or wrong but it's the worry that maybe I could have done something differently did I take everything into consideration how have yeah. you what has helped you to navigate the worry around that not necessarily the outcome but the oh. the self-reflection and self-awareness
1: um, I think that you know part of part of what I do being being able to to reflect and being insightful about what you do is a, you know it's a. In my opinion, it's a not negotiable characteristic of of what I do. That you need to be able to critically reflect on on what you what you've done and on what you would do or wouldn't do in the next next time. Um, and that's a process that's really built into to hospitals and medicine. You know, we we spend a lot of time talking about um, what we've done. Um, we talk about failures, and that's done in a fairly open open environment so that you can be quite brutally honest and, and your colleagues can be quite brutally honest um, so that we can all learn from from those experiences. But I think that I would be disappointed in myself if I was, if I ever stopped, you know, really drilling down what what happened, um, really thinking about it. And I've, I've looked at, I've looked at, you know, back at those experiences and I don't think I've ever been upset with myself for, for a call that I've made. I think usually in that situation that it was the right thing at the time to do um, and sometimes uh, after that information comes to light and you go, oh, I wonder if, you know, maybe it would have been better if I'd done this or it would have been worse if I'd done something else. You know, there's, there's plenty of ways that these sorts of, um, these thinking processes can go and you can tie yourself up in knots um, worrying about it. But for me, that's when a time, a, a really important time to debrief what has happened. Um, and like I say, you know, I one of the things that I love about what I do is is the team. And there are so many wonderful people here in so many different jobs. And our collective experience, our collective skill set is, you know, phenomenal. And being able to have those people as my support, as my sounding board, as my teachers, mentors, colleagues and friends is is priceless uh, and is the one thing that I don't think I would could ever cope without
0: <laughs> and again a reminder that it's critical regardless of what industry or where you work or what's going on for you is get that gather that team around you I think right yeah yeah, yeah. I
1: mean you know
0: two heads are better than one and etc cetera, etc cetera. so yeah. I mean that,
1: that those silly little throwaway sayings they they do actually mean something they yeah. they're real they matter
0: they work. So thinking about heart care, I guess, of the future, research is continuing to grow at an exponential rate and where there's conversations and things that are happening already around like stem cells or growing new mm-hmm. hearts or wearing wearable technology that might alert us of mm-hmm. changes mm-hmm. that are going in our body. What hopes do you have about the future of heart health and heart care?
1: I hope that people put me out of a job. Um, I, I really do. I want... Um, I want prevention to be uh, better funded and, and better um, implemented, um, which is, you know, it's a real public health message. And I know just recently in the UK, they've introduced a sugar tax on on soft drinks. Um, so things like that, that would be my, my biggest hope for the future of, of heart health. But, you know, but that aside, we're still going to be dealing with um, heart disease, no matter, you know, how good our prevention is in, in some way, shape or form. So I think for for me, my my if I had to pick two things that amaze me the most and I hope for the most, I would say, basically around around mechanical hearts and 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 transplant that we have technology that um, you know allows us, to, for example, to grow a heart from scratch, so that people don't people just get it, they don't have to have this sitting around waiting for the phone to ring kind of process or a completely. durable mechanical heart um I think that would be my my biggest hope um for the future and I think I don't know if it's going to happen in in the time that my career will go for but um I think that's something that we're really heading towards and um it's a really really exciting it's an exciting you know prospect that you could go to the shelf and you know Pull off a heart that had just been grown for that particular person. I
0: think that would be absolutely amazing, it's mind blowing. But it could happen <laughs> it? sooner than we think, right? Absolutely, right? Yeah, absolutely. I'll get mine in rose gold. I think we're going to Fantastic. That's yeah. right. <laughs> Look, Nikki, it's been such a delight chat with you. I want to finish on one last question. The name of this podcast is called Standout Life. What does it mean to you to live a standout life?
1: That is a wonderful question. I um, I think my idea of a standout life means that you make change, that you see things that aren't right and you make those changes and that can be something really big like, uh, I don't know, um, winning a Nobel Prize for something or it can be something really small like every single day. What can you do in your day-to-day life to make the world around you a better place? That's a standout life for me
0: sounds great. Look, I know you've got to go and change some lives. So I'll leave you to a bit. Uh, thank you so much for your time, Nikki. Thanks, Ali. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out, a real world guide to get clear, find purpose and become the boss of busy. You can grab a copy by heading to my website, www.allisonhill.com.au.